We're talking about truth, but specifically we're talking about an aspect of truth that's really kind of come under question a lot recently within our own society, and that is the concept of relativism. Relativism. What is relativism? Well, there are a couple of kinds to my knowledge. Uh, the first describes those facepalm-inducing moments at your family reunion. When you show up to the reunion and there's like 14 bowls of potato salad and only one person brought an actual entree, then there's that one three-year-old kid who's like running around with nothing but a soggy diaper on and he's got like a river of green snot running down the front of his face and he's licking all the serving spoons and nobody's stopping him. And then your 84-year-old great aunt is ahead of you in the line and she's got like those three gray scraggly hairs that are just like hanging on her chin, like vibrating like a Bruno Mars halftime show and you're just praying to God that they won't come loose before she leaves the buffet line. Relativisms. <laughs> okay, that's not, that's not really what it means. Although, my, my parents are in town from Oklahoma, and they're like, from Oklahoma, can, can confirm, can confirm. All right. Um, well, today I'm, I'm talking about the other kind, or the, the real kind, the true kind of relativism. Relativism is the doctrine that truth and morality, which is what is right and wrong, those only exist in relation to culture, society, and a historical context, that they are not absolutes. And that means that your culture and the day and age of the society that you live in are what gets to say what is right and what is wrong, because there is no real right and wrong. It's commonplace in our culture to hear people say things like, you know, it's cool, you have your truth and I have my truth. Or, you know, there is no absolute perfect way to know what's really right and wrong. Who's to say? Who's to say what's right? Who's to say what's really true? That's relativism. So it's been said that we're actually living in a post-truth society. So what does that even mean? From what I understand, it means maybe truth exists, but even if it does, it's not as important as the way I feel. And I'm sure we've all seen shades of this in our own circles. I encountered some of this recently. A friend of mine made a post online that was praising all the virtues of his favorite political party. And so it was a meme and it had a list of all these things that his favorite political party had done. And I normally don't engage with this stuff, but I couldn't help noticing on that list, there were some things that were actually done by the political party he really opposed all the time. Major, major historical events. And so I reached out to him and was like, dude, bud, I don't know if you're aware of this, but like some of the things on this list are just absolutely false. And he responded, it doesn't really matter to me if it's true or not, it expresses how I feel about these political parties. And so I love this thing, and I'm going to keep sharing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I know this seems really preposterous to some of us, and it should be surprising because we all really want absolute truth in other areas of our life, right? You know, if you go to the doctor and he's like, well, this may be a tumor or our x-ray machine just might need some servicing, but hey... You choose your truth. <laughs> it's not a tumor at all. <clears throat> it might be. Um, if your general contractor who's building your house holds that his truth is 2 plus 2 equals 37, your place is going to look like a Salvador Dali painting. Um, it's going to be a mess. I have actually seen this doctrine creep into the church a little bit too. And not just in the sense of what is morally right and wrong, but in the sense that maybe there's more than one way to God besides Jesus. 
that only offering salvation through Jesus Christ seems kind of limiting, unaccepting, and unloving for all the people who don't accept him or haven't accepted him yet because they haven't heard about him. Well, how could this mindset actually take root in the church? Because it seems kind of counter to what the Bible talks about, but it makes a little bit of sense because on the surface, it really sounds kind of nice, you know? It sounds inoffensive. It sounds tolerant, even kind-hearted. I'm not saying you're wrong. That's just not my own personal belief, you know? It also makes it easier for us to ignore the painful eternal consequences of what happens with people that we like or our loved ones or our family members who haven't accepted Christ. We have compassion on them, and so we really don't like the truth of that certain situation. I have one friend of mine, he, he used to travel the world on mission with a really popular evangelistic group, and they were spreading the gospel, and he regularly saw people get miraculously healed. He would tell me about stories about this all the time. Regularly saw people's lives changed by encountering Jesus. Yet, he walked away from his faith because he said he felt like the idea that people couldn't be saved apart from Jesus was harsh, prideful, and unloving. God is supposed to be love, he said. I don't see how a loving God would say, you have to come to me through this one way or else I reject you. He said that he had to turn away from that, disagree with the Bible, and hope that everyone is just going to be accepted by God in the end somehow. The biblical passage that upset this friend of mine is found in John 14, 6. If we can bring that up. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Seems pretty clear cut, but let's dig into that a little bit this morning. When we think of right and wrong, when we're thinking of what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, relativism obviously comes up as false because saying that there is no absolute right or wrong or there is no absolute truth is in fact making an absolute statement about truth. There is no absolute truth. Is that a true statement? Yeah. Uh -uh. And ironically, relativists, when you talk to them, it's kind of funny because they usually backtrack on this really quickly. They seem really intolerant of anyone who doesn't agree with them. If you hold that your faith is absolutely true, you've got an argument coming, and they will usually undermine their own stance and staunchly disagree with you. Relativism continually collapses upon itself. Don't push your worldview on other people, man. You shouldn't be telling other people how to think. Don't you understand that's what you're doing with me right now? You're telling me to think like you. <laughs> Deep down, we all know this doesn't make sense. Because also, despite claims of relativism, Everybody knows, religious people and atheists alike, we all know that there is something seriously wrong with our world. Just talk to anybody for about five minutes, and they are eventually going to point out, if not outright complain about, something in this world that they think should not be the way it is, because it's wrong. And I don't mean how terrible the last season of Lost was, and it was awful. I mean broken people committing vicious acts of evil and even the destructive power of nature itself. And these aren't subjective evils. These aren't things that just one person views it that way. They're things that we all know on an objective level are wrong. 
You do your thing and I'll do mine sounds pretty great. But it inevitably invites even more injustices and atrocities to happen because some people doing their thing looks like Gandhi. And some people doing their thing looks like Stalin. In the same way, with spiritual worldviews, some people doing their thing looks like peaceful Buddhism. Some people doing their thing looks like exploitative Scientology. And some people's looks like 9-11. So we good humans, we try to push more towards Gandhi's side, right? We try to show more kindness. We try to do more good than evil. We strive for our good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. But rather than just leaving it at morality, that same motivation starts creeping into our spirituality. And there are some world religions out there that say that the way to heaven or the way to enlightenment is just to do more good than bad. But is that really good enough for what comes after this life? Well, it kind of surprises me that when I ask people, if you were to die today and God asked you why you should be allowed into heaven in his presence forever, what would you say? And you may remember from the sermon we did earlier this year on tactics, that this is, this is how to engage people and to get them talking about spiritual things, just asking questions about their beliefs. So many people these days answer. When I ask them that question, they answer with something along the lines of, well, I try to live a good life. I tried to do more good than I did bad. Well, where does that come from? Where do we get that notion? And do you ever know if or when you've actually achieved that or if you're just kind of teetering on that edge? There's actually nothing in the Bible, especially in the words of Jesus, that even hints that tipping the scale by doing more good things than bad things is what gets us into right standing with God. When I ask people why they think that doing more good than bad is the answer that God's looking for, the only answer I have ever gotten is, I don't know. Well, now we're just throwing spiritual spaghetti at a wall and hoping it sticks. Or we're creating our own new quasi-Christian religion that no Bible supports. And I think this mindset mostly comes from popular films and books, movies, art, because this idea is really prevalent there. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. But if that's not what actual truth is, then it's going to lead to uncertainty. And we want to be, and we need to be certain about the eternal weight of our actions and our beliefs. It has to come from a higher authority than us. It has to come from a higher authority than the folks in Hollywood making those movies because Lord knows they've kind of had a bad track record with moral behavior. All right. Trust me, trust me. In a truly relativistic world, if there is no absolute truth, only our personal preferences, no one gets to say what is ultimately right and wrong. Nobody gets to judge anyone else. It's just my perception of truth versus yours. Well, where does that lead? At first, it seems like there's some great freedom in that, freedom to choose whatever bits and pieces of different worldviews or religions that suit us, the parts that enable us to feel better about ourselves and include all of our loved ones in eternity. And if that doesn't work, then just forget other worldviews and we can just make up our own. But when it's just your preference versus mine, what happens? Your word against mine, what happens? In the real world, might wins out. Whoever is stronger or has a louder voice becomes right. 
solely because of their strength or volume, because we've got no absolute truth to weigh our actions against. We can't say, well, that's right compared to this, or that's wrong compared to this. We just say, well, you beat the other guy, so you win. Relativism is not freeing. It's not freedom. It's actually slavery into the most primal system imaginable. And at that point, it's not a matter of which one is true. It's a matter of which one is biggest. And from there, it gets dark real quick. Which ideology has killed off more of the people who disagree with it? The most popular world religion could still be wrong. Because numbers don't equal truth. Numbers don't tell us anything about the quality of something. Example, there are way more McDonald's in our world than there are steakhouses. Does McDonald's have the best food? <laughs> debatable, I'll give you. It's a little debatable, but all right. You're, you're not going to get too many people on that side. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> that may be your truth, but it's wrong. All right. I've got documentaries to back me up on that one. <laughs> freedom to do whatever our little hearts desire is not actually freedom. It's anarchy. It's chaos. True freedom is being able to do what we want to do in accordance with what we should do. So what should we do, and who determines that? Well, if there are absolute truths and absolute laws that govern our universe, there has to be an absolute law giver. And as Christians, we believe that is the God of the Bible. He's the one who determines that. I mean, you want to talk about truth and reality, what's real. If God existed before our universe existed, that's reality. This is a construct. <laughs> He's more real than we are. He gets to decide what's real. I mean, I don't want to get into a whole, like, matrix analogy, but, you know, you get it. That's the really, really real world. And if you want to get woke, this is the way to do it. Yes, yes. On your way out, we're going to be passing out red pills. <laughs> kidding, kidding. They're kind of culty. They handed out pills and it's strange. I was kind of suspicious of the coffee after that. Anyway. So yes, this is God's universe. He made all this. This is his universe. This is his place. This is his sandbox. We're just playing in it. And inevitably, there's always going to be that one weird kid who's like making sandcastles out of his own spit. And there's obviously a stray cat in the neighborhood. But one of these days, God is going to clean this sandbox and it's going to stay clean for all of eternity. And yes, I realize that metaphor is so in need of help. Anyway, hopefully you get the point. <laughs> My wife and I, we were invited to a dinner a little while back. And it was a couple, and though they professed to be Christians, they said they no longer believed Christ was the only way for salvation. They didn't believe the Bible was reliable. They actually had us over just for the sole purpose of communicating this to us. And their new view of Jesus was of a God too loving to reject people who were just trying to live good lives. But they just hadn't yet surrendered their lives to Jesus as the Bible taught. Well, then they asked for our take on it, and I said, you know, I probably don't have a response that you're going to like because I'm going to have to reference the Bible to support my thoughts. The Bible they had just said they thought was unreliable. And I found it kind of confusing that they said they believed in the Jesus that the Bible talks about, but they didn't believe what it says about him, and they don't believe what he says about himself. 
I'm convinced, personally, there is a mountain of evidence to support the truth of the Bible and how accurate it is. And moreover, Jesus himself regularly quoted Scripture to defend his thoughts and actions. This guy that we're saying we admire, that's what he did. Going through the Bible with a red pen to edit out the parts that make us uncomfortable is just not an option that's open to us. And if you look to find evidence behind the accuracy of the Bible, I am certain you will find it more than reliable. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence to support it. But once we take the Bible off the table, without that, we're just putting forward our own personal preferences. And again, nobody can judge us. Nobody can say we're right or wrong about our interpretation of our Jesus. And this gets really dangerous. It's something that we have to be watchful for within the church because the offshoots of Christianity that turned into really super weird, crazy, harmful cults, like handing out red pills and all that kind of junk, <laughs> those kinds of things always began when people pulled away from their community of faith. They became isolated and they got weird. We need to be in a community. We need to be around other believers, allowing others to speak truth into our lives to keep us centered. And this is yet another importance of life groups and discipleship. Sometimes we need somebody to lovingly come along us and say, that does not quite sound right. I think we should see what the Bible has to say about that. Almost all world religions are extremely exclusive. <clears throat> There's a popular notion that they all kind of teach the same thing. They all sort of share a lot of aspects of what they preach, what they tell people to do to live their life, that they're very, very similar. But if you spend more than five minutes digging into them, you will find that is not the case. Because they all make very big claims about what is true and what is not. And how we think about truth can inform what we think is true. So here's an example. I'm not going to get into all the setup behind the philosophical syllogism and contrapositives for you Wheaton students out there. But this is actually really simple. <clears throat> Let's look at it this way. Here's statement A. Jesus is a myth and he never existed. Statement B, Jesus was a man who lived a long time ago, but he died, and he's dead. Statement C, Jesus is alive. Notice how with each of those three statements, either he's a myth, never lived, he lived a long time ago, dead now, he's alive now. You cannot believe more than one of these at a time because they exclusively eliminate anything except themselves. If one of them is true, the two others must be false. The statements give us no wiggle room to try and accept more than one of them at a time. Now, the statements could all be false, like if for some reason Jesus was like a carnival barker in the 20th century, but they can't all be true. And world religions do the same thing. They rule out all other worldviews by their very statements of faith. Almost all of them, except for the ones like, you know, Baha'i or things like that, that are essentially universalism just wrapped up in a different package and, you know, come on guys, you know that's not true. Anyway, <laughs> um, so here's an example. If, if, let's take Islam. If Allah is the one true God and recognizing Muhammad as his prophet is a requirement for eternal salvation and no other gods are allowed, Islam states that all other world religions, including those that recognize Islam, along with other religions as being equally valid, are untrue. If you try to bring relativism into this, there's a conundrum that has to happen. 
You're saying Islam and Christianity and Hinduism are all true. Yet, Islam says Christianity and Hinduism are false. And Christianity says Islam and Hinduism are false. And Hinduism says Islam and Christianity are false. You can't have it both ways. No, Christianity is true, just like all world religions. But Jesus said he's the only way to God, so was he wrong? Yes. Then Christianity is wrong. No. How does that make any sense? Um, coexist? Logic tells us that Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Taoism, Kabbalah, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Moonies, and even the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster can all be wrong. But they simply can't all be right. If one of them is true, all the others are false. And this is important because we want to seek the truth, not just to know what's right, but also because love, which I think we all agree is a good thing that we want more of, love is only found in truth. I was having a conversation with an atheist once, and he made the comment, if Christianity works for you, that's fine. That's your truth. But don't push this on your kids. Just say this is what you happen to believe, and then let them decide what they believe for themselves. I had to explain that he wasn't getting it. I don't think Christianity is my truth. I think it's the truth. And all of us are responsible for our own salvation. My kids, their relationship with Jesus is on them. I can inform them about it, but their own faith belongs to them. But if I really believe this, if I really believe that Christianity is true, that means I am convinced my kids will spend eternity in torment apart from God if they don't accept the salvation that Christ offers them. Like I'm actually going to agree not to tell them that. Like I'm actually going to agree not to tell everyone that this is real. If I love them, I'm going to protect them. Telling them the truth is the most loving thing I can possibly do. Penn Jillette is a popular illusionist. Uh, he has a duo called Penn and Teller. Uh, pop culture personality, comedian, and though he is an ardent atheist, he gets this. He made this statement on his YouTube channel when talking about a man who shared Christ with him. He said, I have always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize means witness, share your faith, tell other people the good news about Jesus. He said, I don't respect people who don't do that. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or even just not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and you're just not going to tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you did not believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. This guy is no friend of Christianity. <laughs> Major atheist. He gets this. The truth is, this is not just something that makes us feel good. This is not just about us being right. It's about making decisions based upon what we know to be true, how the world really is. It's about showing our love for our fellow souls on this planet, and it's about saving them by showing them God's rescue plan for all of us, Jesus. 
And yeah, we, we could follow the just be supportive, don't judge, just make everybody else feel good, you know, kind of advice about the world. But that's not love. As we saw in our, in our series on love back in January, real love requires us to say and do some really difficult things sometimes. We don't want to just enable people to stay where they are and love them right out of an eternity with God. I was speaking with another guy a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned how his main problem with Christianity was that Christians say, you Christians say, we've got it right, so we're going to heaven and everyone else sucks. Those are his exact words. I told him I was really sorry for the hurtful interactions he must have had in the past, but Christians aren't special because we're right. We're special because of Christ in us. We're not better than anyone else. And God loves you just the same as he does me. Christians are heartbroken over people who don't know Jesus. That's why we tell people about him. We want you to be saved. This guy was just in town for the weekend. So I told him, all right, tomorrow you're going to fly out. And you're flying out of Midway Airport, right? He's like, yeah, okay. So let's forget side roads because that's going to dismantle my analogy. But... Let's say we're just talking about major highways. How do you get to Midway? Well, I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to get on Highway 55. And that will get you from here to Midway Airport. Now, you could tell me, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take 355 North because that's the highway I like. That fits who I am as a person. And I believe if I just stay on there long enough, I'm going to get to Midway. I could just let you go your way but I'm going to have to tell you, no, man, that's not right. You have to get on 55. That is the only road that will get you there. I don't care how long you're going to travel on 355 North, you will never get to Midway. It doesn't mean I dislike you. It doesn't mean I'm better than you. It doesn't mean anything except I don't want you to miss your flight, and I genuinely want to help you out. And the most loving thing I can do is to speak the truth. Speaking of love... If we believe our God to be loving, and he is, <laughs> the notion of relativism, if that's true, think about this. How messed up would God have to be to send Jesus to earth? If he was merely one of the many true ways to God, yet he was tortured so brutally, sacrificed on the cross, when all these other methods were readily available... People could have just followed Buddhism or Taoism or some pagan religion of the day, you know, whatever the Romans were worshiping, and they could have reached God. So why would God send his son and put him through that ordeal? That is what a relativistic spirituality requires us to believe if all of these ways are valid. That would be sadistic and evil, not loving and gracious and merciful. But it was loving. It was love, Christ laying down his life because our sin and separation from God were so great, there was no other way to bring us home to our loving Father God. We were unable to pay the price for our redemption, so he paid it for us because of his love for us, because of his love for you and his love for every single person you will ever encounter for the rest of your life. And I know some people might be wondering, if God is so all-powerful, why doesn't he just flip a switch and change the requirement here? Why doesn't he just accept everyone who's trying to live a good life? Truth be told, if I'm just going off of my personal feelings, 
I wish it worked that way. Everybody goes to heaven in the end, and all the bad junk gets left behind. Everything works out perfectly. Emotionally, I prefer universalism. I'm just convinced it's not true. Three fifty-five might be a much more appealing highway to drive on. I just know it's not going to get you where you want to go. So why doesn't he just accept the worship of these people who grew up in another religion from another culture? It sounds like a pretty reasonable question to ask, but when we think about it that way, I think we're missing a couple of very important points. First, we're not considering just how great our sin was. The Bible says every single human being throughout history, from Adam to us, we've all made the choice to do something that we knew was against God's will, and yet we did it anyway. You probably think of a time in the past week, <laughs> or like me, like past 48 hours. Not proud of those moments, but we do them. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's it's a quick phrase to, to breeze over, but the come short of the glory of God part is really important there. It's not just a sin that was like an oops. It was something that changed our ability to get near God. It's not something that you just apologize for. It was choosing to separate ourselves from God himself. The Bible says when Adam sinned, creation fell with him. The entire universe. It broke the universe. (laughs) And it broke us and our relationship with God so severely that we could never repair it ourselves. We sometimes focus only on who God is, which is super important. He is a personable God. But we neglect to see what God is sometimes. He is perfect. He's holy. Think of it like this. He is perfect light. He's like the sun. And he made us to be little lights, dancing around on the surface of the sun with him. But our sin changed what we are. It made us permanent shadows. Shadows cannot exist on the sun. So no matter what we say or do or apologize, nothing we can do on our own will work. We are forever separated and unable to exist in his presence. What Jesus Christ did on the cross was the only way we could ever be brought back into a relationship with God to fix what our sin destroyed. The life and light of Christ comes into us and makes it possible for us once again to be with God. We're not shadows anymore. We're mooching off of Christ's light. (laughs) We're once again with God who designed us for being with Him. He designed us for friendship with Him. The other thing that we're missing when we think along those lines that I was talking about earlier is we're missing how God is just. And when we chose to sin and separate ourselves from Him, the truly most just, right, perfect thing was for us to be separated from Him for all eternity. End of story. That's justice. That's how things should work. That's the kind of justice we appeal to when we see something go really wrong, when somebody has committed a heinous crime, is we don't expect them to go free for it. But God is loving, and He showed us His mercy. Mercy is not punishing us as we deserve to be punished. Then He showed us His grace, which was giving us something we did not deserve, which was eternal salvation. That's where Romans 3.24 comes in. We read the first part of it. 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
That stinks. That's bad news. But thankfully, God doesn't let us sit around very long without getting some good news uh, when, when something like that is mentioned. Because Romans 3.24 says, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Problem solved. <laughs> but when we talk about the people who haven't heard about Jesus yet, or those people who grew up in a culture or another religion without Christ being mentioned, we are forgetting God's mercy and grace that was undeserved. And we're saying, God, you owe me salvation, and you owe everyone else. And if you don't provide it, you're doing it wrong, and I'm holding you guilty. Despite how sad it may be, when somebody dies of an easily curable disease because they refused to go to a doctor, we don't blame the doctors. Apple founder Steve Jobs, he was actually diagnosed with a rare form of pancreatic cancer. And though it's a rare one, it's actually the easiest to treat. They caught his very early. The prognosis was great. But it ultimately claimed his life because he continually chose to not follow the instructions of the doctors who knew how to cure him. One of his doctors went so far as to say after his death, it was suicide by ignorance. Do we blame Steve Jobs or his doctors? Friends, this is the importance of sharing the gospel. We have to communicate the truth of our world's situation and the truth of the salvation that can be found in Jesus so that no one spends eternity apart from God. I hope this truth inspires us and propels us forward to speaking to others about Jesus, about God's rescue plan for our world, that salvation is available for everyone. And I mean, I know it's still a heavy concept of, you know, why is it the way it is? And there are some questions we're just not going to have perfect answers to. But we can know what is true when we dig into the Bible and see what God's saying to us about this. Now, let's look back at John 14 as, as I'm wrapping up. This is where we see Jesus speaking about the way to God. And we heard that, that one verse earlier. But this is the setup as we go into it. So Jesus is saying, in, starting in verse 1, we're going to go verse 1 through 7. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Where? His Father's house. You know the way to the place where I am going. I'm going into the presence of God and I'm planning on bringing you with me. And you know the way. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, this is where this comes in, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. When we read it all through like that, it doesn't sound so exclusive. <laughs> It doesn't sound so much like a, you got to just get this right or else I don't accept you and I'm rejecting you. It's an invitation. We need to accept that invitation. We cannot reach God on our own, and we know that. We're broken people, incapable of being holy, incapable of being good enough. We can't get near God on our own. Humans have tried and failed for centuries, and we'll keep trying 
as long as they're able. Salvation requires God reaching us. That's Jesus. God loved us so much that he sent Christ to bring us home. He is the truth. He is eternal truth. He is the way to restoring our relationship with God. He is the way to eternal life. He is our Highway 55. He's the only road that gets us there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you did love us enough that you did send a way for us to be reconciled with you, made friends once again. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, your kindness for us, and your desire not just to have created us, not just to know that we exist, but to step down into our lives and know us personally. It is an honor that we don't deserve, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.